Cool. Okay. Give us a call. We've got some text messages coming through, and uh, I think I'm going to make this one text message of the day. Here it comes in relation to plants putting off chemicals. I read an article that when attacked, such as cutting or eating, grass puts out a chemical to warn other plants that they are under attack. So that nice smell of freshly cut grass is the grass screaming out in terror. That's hilarious. <laughs> uh, text message of the day for, for, from Braden there for us. Okay, That's tough, dude. Yeah, now I feel sorry for grass. No, grass is designed to be cut. It's the way it was made. It's that's, made it, 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 that's why it grows from the roots up. So that you can, so that animals can eat it. It was, it was designed as a food to be cut. Oh, so let's. Um, well, now I don't care about grass anymore. Yeah, mow it. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, this one goes back to uh, the story that you're sharing on uh, Hurricane Ida, As in, and, and this person says, "I'm often amazed how few people die during the many natural and man-made disasters. The devil destroys property and tries to kill as many people as possible, but God, in His mercy, saves as many as possible." He gives them all opportunity to find him so they may be saved. I was looking that up, actually. The uh, the deadliest um, hurricane that hit the United States was Hurricane Galveston. Well, they have 14 people, I think, died in this last one, second yeah. worst hurricane they've ever had. Yeah. And uh, only 14 people lost their lives. In Galveston, that was 12,000 people lost <sighs> their lives. That's intense. Yes. 12,000. So, yeah, because I, I mentioned that the That's number... a big difference from 14. It was because it was 1,800 in Katrina. That's right. Which was like the... It was well, terrible. It was well, horrific. Well, we, still, we still know Katrina. Katrina, like, in terms of its size, was the biggest hurricane to hit America. Well, at least a Louisiana, like, ever. But, yeah, 12,000 people dying. That also goes to, like, you know, when they have, like, those... Because now in in the US as like a first world country and many first world countries kind of have the ability to stave off those disasters a little bit. But like, you know, if you go to, yeah, third world countries, well, you know, whether it's Haiti or... Or, or what about the uh, Bombay cyclone of 1882 in India where 100,000 people died? <sighs> yeah, like that that's it right there. Or cyclone Nargis in uh, Myanmar in 2008 where 140,000 people died. In 2008. 2008. And you don't even know the name of this. Yeah. You know, we, who hears about cyclone? We all know Katrina. Yeah, that's right. But this was 2008 and it was Nargis and 140,000 people died. Mm. Uh, in 1991, you had uh, cyclone O2B. That, now, that is an appropriate cyclone name because it sounds evil. Yep, O2B. Um, 140,000 people died there. Uh, the Chittagong Cyclone in, well, this one's going back a few years, 1897 in Bangladesh, 175,000 people. The Bakajani Cyclone, which hit Bangladesh in 1876, man, they were copying it in the 1870s, um, killed 200,000 people. Uh, 1975, Typhoon Nina. In China, that one killed a lot of people. I don't have the number here. Uh, yeah, I don't know, but it was more than the last one. Uh, let me see here. Cyclone Karinga in India in 1839, 300,000 people. 1881, Haipong, Vietnam. Three hundred thousand. Do we have a Do we have a number one? Because now we're getting there. We're just getting more depressed. Seventeen thirty-seven <laughs> um, in Bangladesh. Three hundred thousand people. 
And finally, you have Cyclone Boha. Uh-huh. Cyclone Boha hit in 1970. That was not that long ago. No, it's like... And I'll guarantee that you have never heard of Cyclone Boha. I've never. I've never heard of Cyclone Boha until I looked it up. Half a million people died. Where at? Bangladesh. (sighs) Out of the top ten, five of them have hit Bangladesh. Wow. All of them have hit Asia. Yeah, wow. And we just don't even hear about it, eh? Yeah, we don't hear about it because these are poverty-stricken countries and we don't care. Imagine if you had a cyclone that hit the United States and half a million people died. You'd know about it for the rest of it. You're listening to Faith FM, positively different radio. Okay, so I geeked out there a little bit. I uh, do apologise. Um, a couple of other text messages. We'll just run through these real quick. Space exploration is normally the domain of governments due to the cost. That's right. Now we have companies or rich men who own the companies being able to do the same. Talk about the 1%. I'd say that there's a 0.0.01% well, right there. Yeah. It's like three top wealthiest people in the world who can who have bigger economies than most governments. Um, okay, music. Satan in heaven was gifted with music and was the leader of the heavenly choir before his fall. Imagine how beautiful that would have been. They were singing in front of God for his glory. And imagine how beautiful it will will be when we are back in heaven where we belong and listen to God the Father himself break out in song. The Bible speaks about that. Uh, Vaccines divide and conquer like a constant drop of water on the same spot on your head. Sooner or later, it will go through. Okay, do send your questions through for Michael Worker, Director of Religious Liberty. Uh, We are going to be asking him a bunch of questions and we need to know what you would like to know uh, about the issue of religious liberty and mandatory vaccinations. Let's mm. get to our Bible study. Oh, I just want to say, because that person brought up uh, government spending and space exploration. I listened to a podcast that was all about this and the transfer that we've seen from essentially governments to private entities when it comes to space exploration because it's so expensive, like to make any developments in that field. Like the, the American space shuttle was costing like every single flight, like billions of dollars. And that's why... The space race has kind of started again is because of private interest. Because in nineteen in you know this nineteen sixty nine when they went to the moon, um, space exploration was like four percent of the entire GDP GDP of the the United States, which is it's nowhere near that now. But it was like at the time, and people were complaining at the time, even though they were like, "Oh, we need to beat the Russians to get to the moon." But now it's like the only people because because governments are like, "Oh, well, this is too expensive." do the only people who have the money to do it are private companies that's right even though you would think it would be it it would be in the domain of governments like it should be but now you know you're seeing all these collaborative projects because only private companies have the money to do it so a bigger economy bigger economy than most countries yeah that's right scary (laughs) scary world that we live in right now Mm. exodus chapter 31 is our passage for today let's head over there we're gonna read verse 13 and 16 Mm. exodus 31 verse 13 and 16 then we're going to talk about a story about alexander the great the guy was a psycho oh classic but there's an important lesson we can learn from one of the uh Legends or myths that has come down from Alexander the Great, which may or may not be true, but probably is true because we do know somewhat of the character of the man. I, I don't know. He sounds pretty great. Why do you, Why do you call him a psycho? I just thought he yeah was he always... was he was considered to be a psycho throughout history until the Roman era. Mm. It was the Romans who came along, and he was actually and this is an interesting thought because he was the Adolf Hitler mm. of the ancient world. 
He was the serial arsonist who just went and burnt the world down and committed, you know, cultural and, and national genocide wherever he went. Mm. You had so many ancient and amazing cultures that just simply ceased to exist and were wiped off the face of the earth by Alexander the Great until the Greeks, until the Romans came along and said, you know, Adolf Hitler was actually, I mean, Alexander the Great was actually a really great guy. Yeah. And they rewrote the history. They were the ones who called him the Great. And the reason they rewrote the history was that they wanted to, uh, you know, obviously take over the world themselves and they're like, no, uh, you know, taking over the world and, and, and being a serial arsonist and committing cultural genocide wherever you go is actually a really good thing and if you don't believe us, look at what Alexander the Great did because he was great and he did a great thing. Mm. And it also linked them with the Greek culture because you've got to remember that the Romans adopted Hellenistic culture. Yeah, they well, worshipped Hellenistic gods. They grew out of it, essentially. Yes, that's right. Yeah. They came straight out of, out of Greece. Mm. Um, that's in, in, in many ways, you know, their religion, their philosophy, you know, and so they've gone, yeah, no, we're going to make him into a hero mm. and changed. They rewrote history in relationship to Alexander the Great. I'm getting way sidetracked here, aren't I? Yeah. No, I you like, I, I actually, no, I really like you talking about it. Well, the, the question that, the question that raises is, you know, we're what, 70 years on from Adolf Hitler. Mm. In 400 years, will the history be rewritten in the same way that it was rewritten for Alexander the Great? You know, it's only a matter of time before somebody writes a Hitler-positive history and they're going to get slammed. They already, it kind of already exists. It kind of already exists, but, but not it's like in the mainstream. Heads. No, yeah, it's not yeah. mainstream. It's not yeah. mainstream. But sooner or later you'll have a mainstream... Like an academic. An academic who will do it. Yeah. And they're going to get slammed, but then over time... History can rewrite itself. All you need to do is get somebody, uh, a country that is powerful enough to say, actually, you know what? That was actually not such a bad thing that happened back then. <laughs> Karl Marx. <laughs> well, I mean, hey, there's plenty of people out there right now that are writing, writing, rewriting the history of Karl Marx, isn't there? Yeah, that's right. He's, he's like a hero to, like, mm-hmm. To, mm-hmm. to many Lots of-, of people who don't know their history. Yeah. All right. Exodus chapter 31, verse 13 and 16. We have a very significant passage right here about remembering history mm. and not forgetting history. 13 to 16? 13. And 16 or 216. Eh, let's just read them all, eh? Yeah, that's right. Good, good idea. Uh, let's start from 12, actually. The Lord um, then gave these instructions to Moses. Tell the people of Israel, be careful to keep my Sabbath day, for the Sabbath is a sign of the covenant between me and you from generation to generation. It is given so you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. You must keep the Sabbath day, for it is a holy day for you. Anyone who desecrates it must be put to death. Anyone who works on this day will be cut off from the community. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day must be a Sabbath day of complete rest, a holy day dedicated to the Lord. Anyone who works on the Sabbath must be put to death. It's pretty full on. Yeah, the people of Israel must keep the Sabbath day by observing it from generation to generation. This is a covenant obligation for all time. It is a permanent sign of my covenant and the people of Israel. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, but on the seventh day he stopped working and was refreshed. Oh, wow. Pretty heavy stuff right there. It's so, wait, it says this is a covenant for all time. Yes. 
if I break the Sabbath, do I need to die? I was about to, I was about to ask you that question, Lawson. <laughs> Why is it that we don't enforce that kind of a law today? Um, because we don't live in the theocracy. Exactly. Yeah. And this is one of the things that I think a lot of Christians uh, miss, particularly, you know, they start to blend uh, theocratic law with Ten Commandment law, with health laws, with uh, hygiene laws, Mm. with ceremonial laws. And if you start to blend all of those together into just one kind of a law, and part of the challenge with that, of course, is that you've got examples like this where the Bible blends the two together under the theocracy. Mm. And they don't recognize that the civil laws with the civil penalties ended That's right. with the theocracy. That's right. Yeah, they, th- this is essentially a civil application of a principle that was given in the Ten Commandments. That's right. But it's interesting what you said there. Many of the, the people blend it together for the express purpose of throwing the whole thing out. Yes, yes, absolutely. They're like, oh, you know, you can't, you can't keep the Sabbath unless you execute people who break the Sabbath. Yeah, that's right. No, we don't live under a theocracy anymore, yeah. and only under a theocracy can you have a death penalty. That's right, that's right. Because you can only have a death penalty where you have direct government by God. You can't do that under a democracy because in a democracy you're bound to make mistakes. And history is littered with examples where mistakes have been made and the wrong people have been executed. Yeah. And interestingly, like you could probably find the same penalties for many of the Ten Commandments. Like murdering someone. Of course. That's right. Dude, if you lie, yeah, if you cheat. If you, if dude, if you like commit adultery, you sleep with someone, like that's like the death penalty in the Bible as well. So to say, oh no, all these these ones are good and have can act, act, uh, application of all time, you know, and then to say, oh no, one of them's bad because they have a terrible penalty. Well, they all do, <laughs> like yeah, that's right. under the theocracy, under their under system of civil law. That's yeah, right. That's and right. that's where God speaks either through the prophet or the high priest to give, you know. The correct judgment, answer, yeah. the judgment, mm. yeah, because we cannot judge these kinds of cases. Also, this is like, you know, this is why lawyers existed, you know, because like this is this is the maximum penalty right here. That's right. Like, if say if a child broke the Sabbath, like, are they supposed to be killed? Like, no, because you know we have laws where we talk about consent and age and all. That. We don't we don't look at the whole picture when we look at this stuff often, but. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, now the Bible says that this is a sign of the covenant. Mm. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. All right, let's go to our Bible study, and I want to go back and have a look at uh, the first part of what we were reading right there, which was... Exodus chapter 31, verse 13 and 14. That's right. Because the Bible talks about the covenant. We've got to decide, we've got to find out, is this the old covenant or the new covenant that's being spoken of? Mm. In verse 13, the Bible says, Tell the people, be careful to keep my Sabbath day, for the Sabbath is a sign of the covenant between me and you from generation to generation. It was given so you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. Okay, so we're going to find out, is this the old covenant or the new covenant that is being spoken of right here? And to do so, we've got to find out uh, which which covenant is the covenant that makes us, where God makes us holy. What is it mm. that differentiates between the two? Uh, of course, the new covenant was established in the Garden of Eden. It is also called the everlasting covenant. The old covenant was established uh, just before the law was given at Mount Sinai. You find that in Exodus chapter 19. And the difference between the two comes down to this. It comes down to who it is 
that makes the individual holy. So if we go over to uh, the book of Hebrews chapter 8, and uh, Hebrews chapter 8 is the only place in the Bible where the new covenant is actually defined. Uh, So let's read what the Bible says here in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 10. That's right. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Okay, so who is making the people holy here in the new covenant? God. God is making the people Mm -hmm. holy. All right, now go back to Exodus chapter 19 and let's find out who makes the people holy in Exodus chapter 19. Well... I'm turning there now, but I can already, you know, just seeing that I just read the verse, I know that it says um, the Lord. It's the Lord right here in Exodus chapter 9. No, you were thinking of Exodus 31. Oh, I was thinking of Exodus 31. Mm. Um, okay, no, so Exodus 19 yes. and verse Well, let's four. read verse 5 and 6. 5 and 6. Now, if you obey, um, obey me and keep my covenant, I will make... Uh, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on the earth, for all the earth belongs to me. And you will be my kingdom of priests and holy nation. This is the message that must give to the people of Israel. And verse 8. And verse 8. The Bible says, And all the people responded, We will do everything that the Lord has commanded. So Moses brought the people's answer back to the Lord. So in verse 8, who is making the people holy? Themselves. Themselves. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. That's the difference between the old and the new covenant right there. Under the new covenant, God makes us holy. Under the old covenant, we make ourselves holy. Mm. It is that simple. Now, some people ask the question, why is the new covenant older than the old covenant? And that's because we look at it with a Western mindset. Uh, If you look at this with a Middle Eastern mindset, of course, you're going to note that the old covenant was the one that was established with the blood of a bull at Mount Sinai. Mm. It was ratified with the blood of a bull at Mount Sinai. The new covenant, which is the everlasting covenant, which was made in the Garden of Eden, was ratified by the blood of Jesus on Mount Calvary. Mm. And so it is dated from when it was ratified or when it was sealed, not from when it was actually made. So we find here the Sabbath very, very clearly a sign of the new covenant. And we have to ask ourselves the question, why? How does the Sabbath become a sign of a new covenant? How does the Sabbath become a sign that God is the one who makes us holy, that we cannot make ourselves holy? Why is the Sabbath a sign that it is impossible for us to save ourselves? Mm. And I did say I would give an example of Alexander the Great, who was a psychopath. So as the story goes, uh, he was somewhere between Persia and Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Somewhere there. He's just chilling. There's a lot of space there. And he's talking to one of the tribal elders or tribal leaders that he had conquered. And they're having a conversation together. And he was mentioning the fact that his army was always victorious because his army considered to him to be God. Mm. Now, you know you're a psychopath when you go around telling people that you are God. Yes. And apparently, you can take as many different versions of this story as you want, he was not believed by the tribal leader. Mm -hmm. And so Alexander the Great, there was a platoon of soldiers nearby. They were standing on top of a clifftop. And so Alexander the Great immediately ordered that platoon to march off the cliff. They all stood up instantly and marched off the cliff and died. That's Why intense. did they do that? Yeah. It's an intense story. 
And this just shows just how much of a psychopath Alexander the Great was mm. that he would do such a thing. Why did he do that? Alexander did that because he wanted to demonstrate the fact that his army, they were true believers in the fact that he was God. Do we find an equivalent story in the Bible? Yes, we do. We find it in the story of Abraham when God comes to Abraham and tells him to sacrifice his son Isaac. Mm. And because Isaac was a true believer that God is actually God, and in this case you are dealing with God, who is actually God, he's like, he gets up the next day, he gets the gear together, he gets Isaac, and he starts heading for the mountain where the sacrifice is going to take place. Mm. Does God allow him to do so? Absolutely. And this is the difference between God and Alexander. Alexander didn't stop that platoon on the edge of the cliff. He just let them march over. Mm. God stops Abraham. Now, the reason that Abraham was prepared to do that, the Bible says, was because he knew that Isaac would be resurrected. Mm. And so in that circumstance, it's really not that different from when I had an operation the other day and the anaesthetist came around and the anaesthetist said, you know, you're going to be out. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to be out. This is going to be like I'm dead. I'm going to be dead to the world, but I had faith in the anaesthetist that when the time came, he would bring me back around again and, you know, hey, I'm here again this morning to tell the tale. Unfortunately. And Abraham had that, (laughs) yes, just ignore Lawson. Um, Abraham had that same faith in God. Mm. He's like, okay, he's going to go to sleep. Mm. Death is like a sleep. And then God is going to resurrect him. God's going to bring him back around. Abraham had that absolute faith in God, and because he had that absolute faith in God, uh, he was prepared to do that. And the Sabbath is a lot like that because it's a demonstration of our absolute faith in God. And the reason why it's a demonstration of our absolute faith in God is because just like the soldiers who marched off the cliff and just like the sacrifice of Isaac, there is no immediate reason Why? Mm. It's something that we do because we have absolute faith in God. That's right. It's a demonstration of our connection with God. Mm. And the great thing about it is that God is not asking us, like Alexander did, because God is not a psycho, to march off a cliff. He's asking us to rest. Wow. Could God give any better sign than that? to us that is a demonstration, a way for us to demonstrate our faith in God. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. (laughs) But right now it is time for... Question of the Day. Okay, so question of the day today. We actually ran out of questions of the day from our listeners. And yep. so, listen. So, so Lawson has put in a question that has just been, just been a, a burning question <laughs> oh, on his heart forever that he wants answered. How do I find? I was just like, oh, a godly wife. How you know is? Yeah. Have we ever done this one before? Yeah. It's, it's a pretty right. good question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, just Lawson, just like, oh, well, it's a good question. I'm like writing notes. <laughs> I've never done this one before. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Lawson's phone number is no. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay, so it depends who you ask in the Bible. Ooh. If you ask Moses, the way you find a godly wife is to marry somebody from a different race, a different color, 
uh, a different nationality and a different culture. So Moses marries marries an Ethiopian by the name of Zipporah. If you ask Ruth and Boaz, or if you ask Boaz how to find a godly wife, you're going to wait until a young lady proposes to you in the middle of the night. If you're going to ask Isaac how to find a godly wife, then you get your dad to send his foreman to a far country to pick one for you. Mm. If you ask uh, Hosea how to find a wife that God wants you to marry, I'm not going to say godly, but a wife that God wants you to marry, then you would check out the local brothel. Yikes. Um, if you ask Solomon and the Shulamite how to find a godly wife, then maybe some fruit picking in the Barossa Valley or the Hunter Valley, somewhere like that, might be a good idea. Mm. Go grape, grape picking and uh, you might find a godly wife there. Um, if you were to ask Ahasuerus how to find a godly wife, then you'd hold a beauty pageant. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so this is the this is the this is this is the point of all of these stories that I've just highlighted here in answer to Lawson's question. The point is that there is a multitude of different ways, and God does not give a formula. So many books out there, so many Christian books, particularly written during the 1990s and the and the 2010s, mm. were trying to produce formulas on how to find a godly wife. And when you read the Bible, the Bible goes out of its way to tell you there is no formula. Yeah. I guess dating goodbye, baby. Yes. <laughs> you know, when that book first came out, it was sent to, I was running a Christian bookshop at the time and it was sent to me. Oh, you should stock this book. This is amazing. I refused. I read that, you know, sat down, read through the copy that had been sent to me. I was like, there's no way I'm stocking this in my bookshop. That was back in the 1990s. Mm. And uh, so glad that I never did. Um, okay, so there is no formula. That's the first point. Okay. Uh, the next point is, I guess there's some practical considerations that you need to look at within the culture that you are in today. Mm. Because when you look at all of those examples, they were in very different cultures and very different circumstances than what we find ourselves in today. So just let's think about it from a practical perspective. If you're looking for a godly wife and you're not a church attender, that's going to be really hard for you. Yes. Because a godly woman, one of the first questions they're going to ask is, oh, what church do you go to? That's right. Because she'll be a church attender. And you're really going to narrow your prospects tremendously if you don't attend church. Um, The most important thing that you can do is to be a person of prayer Mm. and to spend more time in prayer than you've ever spent ever before in your life and commit this to God because the one thing that all of these examples have in common is that God directed their relationship. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.